worshiping. Hope you have a Bible, and if you do, we'll be in Philippians chapter 2 this morning. We'll be flipping over to Romans 12, not too far to the left. From Philippians, we'll be reading verses 12 through 18 uh, to begin our time together as we conclude what has been, I think, a really really productive, uh, a really constructive uh, conversation, a series of conversations called Engage. Uh, and if you haven't been with us, we'll catch you up really quickly on what that has been all about. And, and I think we can land this plane, um, regardless of if you've been here or not, I think you'll get something out of today's message. And, and I really hope that you do uh, as we talk about the importance of obedience, the importance of obeying the will of God. So Philippians 2, verse number 12 through 18, uh, Paul is writing to the Philippian church, but also through the Spirit to us all these years later. He says to them, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation or put to work your own salvation with fear and trembling. As in salvation is not a light thing or is not a, a, a small thing. It, it's, an, it's an amazing blessing to be given, to be blessed with. So we ought to work it out with that reverence and that respect. For it is God who works both in you to will and to do for his good pleasure. Do all things without complaining and disputing. Man, we should put that verses on our refrigerators, on our billboards, Right, that would just make life so much better if we just all obeyed that one verse without any context at all. Do all things without complaining and disputing that you may become blameless and harmless. You think, well, complaining and disputing isn't really that harmful, right? But maybe it is more than we realize. Do all things without blameless, without complaining and disputing that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. So God confirms some things you may think about the world. But in the midst of a, of a, of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, literally as stars in the sky. Holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Yes, if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith. Paul's writing to them as their, as not as the pastor, but as the planter of the church, as the leader of the church, as the influencer over the church, that his work for them has not been in vain. He says, I am glad and rejoice with you all for the same reason you also be glad. And rejoice with me. So Paul believed that the work that he planted and started there would be continued by the Philippians. Now, today we are concluding our conversation about what it means to be engaged with God. And, and engaged is a fancy word of being close to, being connected to, being in step with, being in harmony, being united with God. Uh, what it means to be totally focused on and in step with and captured by and motivated for him. Now, don't worry if you haven't been with us. Uh, two words can sum up our previous two conversations. Two words, uh, trust and talk. Trust and talk. To be engaged with God, fully immersed and totally in tune with him, we've got to trust in him and we've got to talk to him. It's that simple, 
But that opens up our lives into something so powerful. Uh, the basic logic is that, the, that maybe you already knew this before this series, and even if you are new to faith, you probably know this, that if God is in control, if God rules over all, if God has the whole world in his hands, why wouldn't we trust him? How could we not trust in him? Yeah, there's some things that are on fire. Yeah, there's some things that we don't agree with. Yeah, there's some things that we're worried about, concerned about in our personal lives, in our family lives, in our national you know, conscience. Yeah, there's a lot of things that are not as they should be or as we would like them to be. But if God is in control of it all, if God says it's all in my hands, why wouldn't we trust him? How could we not trust him? So if we want to be engaged with his plans for the universe, the quickest route to that place with God is by turning towards him and trusting in him. Proclaiming to God, God, I trust in you. I'm depending on you for all my needs, for all my direction, for all my future. I'm not going to take a step if my faith is not in you. I'm totally relying on you. We're shifting our weight out of ourselves, out of this world, out of money, out of politics, out of society. We're shifting our weight onto him and only him. That's what it means to trust God. Totally engage with him. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. As in acknowledge that he is over and in control. He is ruling over even that area of your life. In all your ways, acknowledge him. And he will make straight your paths. As in he will show you what way you should be going. But trust is that important first step. But we determined that a second one is necessary. And that's talking with God, communicating with God, being close to God, and truly making the relationship he's offered to you personal. Again, if the God who is in control and rules over it all also happens to want to know you and be in a relationship with you, how could you decline that? How could you say, well, let me check my calendar. Let me make sure that I'm not busy right now. I mean, why wouldn't you clean your schedule and say, okay, God, if you want to know me, I want to make sure that in the first in the morning and before I go to bed and all throughout the day that I am talking to you and I am communicating with you. I'm praying to you because I want to make sure that we're on the same page and I don't want to be tuned into the wrong outlets and the wrong channels and the wrong voices. I mean, the God of the universe has invited us to follow him, be in constant fellowship with him. That's a major development, isn't it? So when Jesus said, I want to get you, I want you to get into a quiet place. I want you to talk with God. I want you to go to him in prayer, not just proclaim your faith, but figure out how trusting God can translate to living for God, how trusting God might transform your earthly life with a heavenly purpose. So we determine this, that prayer isn't about getting our words to God as much as it is about getting his word and his will into our hearts and into our lives. So think about it this way. Praying to God, talking to God is mostly about how it sets up our listening to God. Because isn't it true that half of every conversation, unless you're one of those people that just talks and talks and talks and talks and talks for 45 minutes at a time like me, (laughs) Talking to someone involves listening to someone as well, right? If you're just a talker and no listener, then nobody wants to talk to you, right? Or maybe that's the problem. Half of every conversation is listening, right? And if we're decent people, if we want to be friends with people, you listen as much as you talk. 
So we talk to God because we express ourselves, and he explains himself. So as we declare our trust in him, we, he reveals his plans for us. As we pray, our Father who, which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. As we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. He reveals his will as we pray and talk and lean on him. So we see that trusting and talking are so important. Relying and praying to God is so important if we're going to take our relationship to another level so that we might even be more engaged. And that leads us to this final week in discussion around this subject. If we're going to be engaged with God and stay engaged, it's a big thing. Stay engaged with God. It's kind of like relationships that we have here on earth. Falling in love is easy. Staying in love, not so easy, right? That's, that's why there's a whole lot more people that fall in love than stay in love. Starting a relationship might be easy, but continuing that relationship is not always that easy, is it? Now, of course, God is not gonna bail out. God's not gonna give up on us, but if we wanna stay engaged with him as he is with, as he is with us, staying engaged is important. So we trust in him, we talk to him, and that sets up obeying him, which is so important. So if there's one consistent theme throughout the Bible, it's, that, and it's clearly evident throughout, throughout history, the most engaged will be the most eager to obey. Show me someone engaged with God, and I'll show you someone who is obeying God. Not, because, uh, not only because preparation is there, but because there is this divine energy, and that might be a weird word or a weird phrase for, for me to use, but I'll explain why I'm using that in a minute. There is divine energy that God has translated to us that as we've been praying to him and trusting to him, God has channeled unto us this divine energy that is waiting to be unleashed through our lives, that's waiting to be translated through our lives into our actions. So when we've been trusting in God and talking to God, God has been preparing us and filling us with his energy. Now, let me explain why I'm using the word energy. Now, I'm, about to, I'm not talking about something abstract or mystic. Uh, I, by energy, I mean, this, in the scientific way, energy, um, as we understand it scientifically, is the ability to do work. If you look up energy in the dictionary, it's the ability to do work. Energy, the purpose of energy is that it might accomplish some amount of work, right? And I mean energy like when you get your light bill and it says energy used, right? Energy is the ability to do work. So when we are actively trusting in God and consciously praying to God, God is channeling energy meant to produce obedience and kingdom Work. Now, the reason why I'm using the word energy is, is what do we read about over and over again in the Bible? What does God compare us to in this world? He compares us to lights in a dark world, right? And what do lights need to operate? Energy, right? What does he say in verse number 15? That you might be children of God in a crooked and perverse and dark world that you might shine as lights in the world. And how, what does he preface that, that verse with? He prefaces it back in verse number 12 and 13 by talking about God wanting to work in us. God has given us the energy we need, the ability we need to do the work that accomplishes the good for his kingdom. Does that make sense? 
Now, let me explain a little bit more about energy and how it works in our world. Uh, again, this is pure science, so I'm just giving you facts here. Does anybody remember uh, the most basic science lesson, probably from middle school or high school, uh, you learned about two different kinds of energy. You learned about potential energy, and you learned about kinetic energy. Now, I know some of y'all hadn't looked at this in a long, long time. This is church, not science class, so why are you doing this, Justin? I'm, I promise it makes, it'll make sense. It'll help you. So energy doesn't just come from nowhere. Energy is stored up, and then it's released. There's the potential, and then there's the kinetic release. So when you've been trusting in God, and you've been talking to God, he is preparing you, he is storing up within you the energy you need, his divine energy, that you might be able to do his will. And again, that's what he says in verse number 12, that he, he, he admonishes them for obeying, but he says, you've got to continue to work out your salvation, as in put to work the things that God has placed in you. You've been trusting, you've been praying, what are you doing with that? How are you living that out? For it is God who works in you both to will and to do. So God gives you the want to and God gives you the can do, right? Does that make sense? God gives you the desire to and God gives you the ability to. That you might be able to do for his good pleasure. So he gives us the ability to will and to do according to his good pleasure so that we might shine like stars. Again, that's what verse 15 says. Shine like lights or stars in the world. So here's where the science lesson I think will help and where I, I think a sense of urgency will come down on all of us today so that we can see how these work together in our engagement with God and are constantly flowing one to another. I really wanted to do a, a demonstration today um, because I think pictures are better than words sometime. Um, so I thought, I thought the best way to demonstrate this would be with a slingshot uh, and, uh, um, or maybe a bow, but uh, again, that, that kind of gets a little bit messy. But I, I thought slingshots are very biblical, right? David in the slingshot, and, and there's bows all over the Old Testament. Everybody in battle uses the bow. So, so I went to Walmart to buy a slingshot. You think, well, Justin, do you not have something like that? Well, no, look at me. I mean, I don't, I don't own anything useful. I own technology and I own toys and stuff. I don't own anything that's actually gonna help me if I'm in need in the world. So I had to go... And I, I needed to buy a slingshot, but wouldn't you know that the slingshots are locked up with the guns? So I, I couldn't buy a slingshot, but the bow and arrows are not locked up with the guns. So I don't know if you, uh, if you are looking to buy a slingshot, you need to make sure you get somebody to unlock the case, but you can buy all the bow and arrows you want. Don't worry, this is a trainer's bow and arrow. Um, so this is, for, this is for children learning learning how to, to, to take care of themselves in the woods or whatever. Um, uh, so, you know, uh, now listen, I, uh, I, if you're an archer, okay, uh, um, uh, you know, I have no experience with a bow and arrow, so don't make fun of me. My form is not going to be good. The only thing I've ever done close to shooting a bow and arrow is play the Wii, and that was about 15 years ago. So, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't, you know, don't make fun. So, let me try to explain without making a complete fool of myself. So, in my hand, is an arrow, right? This is a real arrow, so watch out. Uh, I mean, I don't think it, yeah. I mean, y'all are far enough away, it probably would do some damage. Uh, this is an arrow, right? I, and I have a bow, right? So the arrow in my hand has no energy at all, right? This arrow is completely empty of energy. In my hand, on the table, it cannot accomplish any amount of work. But when I put the arrow 
and, and I had to learn how to do this. I've never, I never held something like this before. So y'all, y'all pray for me. So I'm going to point this way. So when in my hand, when the arrow is in the bow and I pull it back, all of a sudden it's got potential energy, right? Right? And they, t- they teach you in safety school, never point at somebody. So I'm not going to point y'all. Um, we might have a hole in the wall later, so watch out. Um, the arrow has potential energy. But guess what? That potential energy, as high as it may be, as long as it's pulled back like this, is not going to mean anything in terms of accomplishing anything. A lot of us are like that arrow right now. We are in potential. We are prepared. We are full of ability. But we stay like this. We trust God. We pray to God. And that arrow is pulled back as far as it can, as tight as it can. And it's ready to do some work. But it never gets unleashed. You know what happens when the potential energy just sits, sits, sits there? It eventually dissipates. Because like you and like me, our arms get tired and eventually we'll let go. And all that potential energy doesn't amount to anything. And no matter what we were prepared to do, if we didn't unleash it, all that preparation was wasted. Potential energy is important as a preparation phase. But it's all untapped potential if it's unreleased. If it's unreleased. So it must be released in order for the potential energy to translate to kinetic energy, where the work actually gets done, where you can actually measure and chart how much energy was harnessed and released. Something changes as a result, a step is taken. Energy must be released. The same way that your house might be getting piped in with all the light, all the energy in the world. But if you don't flip the switch, what does that, what does that do? You have the energy, but you're not implementing the power. Do you, do you see where we're going with this? You probably can predict where we're going with this by now. Yes, we should trust in God for the sake of trusting God. Yes, we should pray for the sake of praying. But ultimately, we do all these things so that we might be transformed. So that our engagement might be taken to another level so that we might begin to obey God, that he might work through us and that we might work for him. Again, what does verse 13 say? For it is God who works in you both to will and to do according to his good pleasure, but it's up to us to put that energy to use. Now flip over with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 12. You might want to keep a bookmark in Philippians. We'll turn back there at the end of our time. Romans 12, verse number one and two, a very familiar passage. There's so many passages, I think, that would, that would amplify this and would communicate this message very, very clearly. But I think Romans 12, one and two are probably the best verses to go to to kind of punctuate this. Romans 12, one and two, you probably know these verses by heart. Paul says, I beseech you therefore, my brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So you've trusted in God. You've been praying to God. Your mind has been renewed. You are being transformed so that you might prove or put into action the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now, this is not just a one-time calling over. This is perpetual. This is every single day for the Christian life. 
we present ourselves and are transformed. We rely on and reach for God and that we, he might release us under our worlds. So the process isn't a one and done thing that we trust God once, we pray once, and we are obedient once. This is the daily habit of engagement that we are constantly being renewed and reusing. But the question today, the question we've got to answer that I think we're, a lot of us might drop the ball is, as comforting as we find trusting God, as comforting talking to God is, are we following through on the convictions he lays on our hearts? Are we being obedient to him? We trust, we depend on God, we pray and we talk to God, but are we obeying him? Having been transformed, are we doing some sort of work for him or what kind of work are we doing for him? Trusting in God and praying to God will translate to God preparing us for good works. Having been transformed, are we now being obedient? There's a lot of directions we could go with this. We could just make a list of things that you should be doing as Christians because there's a lot of things that you should be doing as a Christian that would be appropriate. But in fact, Paul goes on in Romans 12 to do that. But first, he wants to talk about the unique opportunities that we all have to obey God in our individual lives. So before he deals with the general, we all should be doing this kind of stuff, he wants to talk about you and I and the unique opportunities we have to obey God. Now, I wanna, I wanna help you make a switch in your minds today. When you often hear the word obey, there's part of us that says, oh, you know, I don't uh, obey. That means I have rules to keep and, and I don't really know if I want to do that. You know, there's obligations. And, and I think we lose the blessing uh, that comes along with, 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 with obeying God because we, we see it as a chore. And, and either we do it and we say, hey, look at me, look at what I did, or, or we don't do it or we, do, or we whine and complain the whole time. So when it comes to obeying God, there really is a joy available and a thrill available to us when a life committed to honoring him and obeying him is unleashed on the world. So I, I want you to consider when you hear the word obey God or you hear the word obedience to God, I want you to also hear the word opportunity. Opportunity. Because what obedience really is, is an opportunity to collaborate with God on something so much bigger and better than anything this life offers us. Think about this. Obedience Obedience is an opportunity to make a difference we otherwise wouldn't have. Because what did Paul tell us in Philippians? We would not have the want to or the ability to unless God gave it to us. So think about this. Your opportunity to obey God is something that you otherwise would not have if not your relationship with God having given it to you. Now, a lot of us, we've been raised in church and we, we've been hearing rules and rules all of our lives. But listen, there's a lot of people that have never been blessed to have that foundation. But for all of you, no matter where you come from and what context it is, your obedience to God is an opportunity you otherwise would not have. In our flesh, we don't want to, we don't have the ability to, but Paul says he gives us the will and the ability. So we bring our bodies to God. We bring our lives to God and we lay them down before him so that he might show us what his will is. So to consider obedience as an opportunity. I think it's a no-brainer. I think all of us throughout our lives find ourselves in unique situations where maybe only we have been strategically placed by God to obey him. Listen to how Paul talks about us in verse three through eight. 
For I say through the grace given to me, to everyone who's among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt each one a measure of faith, as in God has given every one of you a unique gift and has placed all of you uniquely in your worlds for his glory and to accomplish his good. And you alone can accomplish the good he's assigned you to accomplish because there's only one of you. He says, for as many members in the body, one body, but all members do not have the same function. So being many are one body in Christ, individually we're members of one another. So all of us, we're together, but we all individually have a unique offering to the world. All of our potential is different. And then he gives some examples. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering or service. Or he who teaches in, in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, who leads with diligence, who shows mercy with cheerfulness. I want to focus in on four things that Paul brings up here. Prophesy, serve, exhort, and generosity or mercy. Some of us will have the opportunity to obey God in these areas. Some of us will only have one opportunity. Some of us will have an opportunity in all these. But the point is there will be specific scenarios and situations we find ourselves in. If we are engaged with him in faith and fellowship, and we've been trusting and praying to him, the door will open for us in a way that could change us and change others and change our world, but that's only available to us. It may be a small thing that only gets noticed in your home. It may be a thing that changes your company. It may be something that changes the world, but again, it's what God gives you the opportunity to do, whether pertaining to yourself, your family, a greater community, the church and beyond. So I want to bring, I want to talk about these four. When you hear these four things, when you hear prophesy, that's just a fancy word for speaking up. As in, you've got some truth to speak and nobody else is speaking it. And God's given you a platform to speak that life, to speak that truth, to speak his word. And perhaps nobody else is going to take that opportunity, but you know that you're the one that's been called to do it. Serve or minister means, hey, you've been called to reach out. And there may be nobody else reaching out, but you know that you can reach out and you can make a difference. Exhort means to encourage. That nobody else might be worried about encouraging people, but you have the opportunity to lift somebody up and to make somebody stronger and and, and help heal. When it comes to generosity and mercy, you have the opportunity to pour yourself out for somebody else, to pour out what God has given you for the sake of something else, somebody else's need. There will be cases where you are the one who can move the needle, bring the change, make the difference by speaking out, reaching out, lifting up or pouring out. See, if we consider this an opportunity, not just a matter of obedience, I think we can see that this isn't just about checking boxes. This is about contributing and collaborating and building the kingdom of God. We've trusted in God's rule and reign. We've prayed for his kingdom to come. Our next step is obedience, making the most of our opportunity to bring his kingdom to life. Now listen, we're entering the Christmas season where I think all of us this time of year are a little more inclined to lean in this direction, to lean toward others. We celebrate Christmas as if heaven feels closer. And and the reason it does is because everybody acts differently this time of year. We all act better. There's an infectious spirit in the world, in the air, as we all recall and reflect the Christmas gift. 
God is with us and for us, and we feel that and we share that. But listen, this should not just be a Christmas thing. This is a Christian thing. Every day is an opportunity to obey God and make him known in our world. Again, what did Paul say back in Philippians? Shine like stars in the sky in a crooked and dark world. And what is Paul saying here? That we might allow God's grace to work through us. That his energy would go from potential to kinetic. That we would go from prepared to reality. And whereas this time of year it comes easier, often in our world there's a lot of discouraging things that keep us from obeying God that make us not necessarily that we sin, but that we just don't care. But I want you to be reminded, Christians, that this cannot be an excuse for us. James, the brother of Jesus, said this about excuses, about those who know what they should be doing as Christians, but look for ways or allow things to talk them down. Listen to how, what James says. Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it to him or to her, that is sin. So James, how would you define sin? This is the brother of Jesus. I think he would know, right? How would you define sin? Is it a particular action? Is it a particular moral offense? Is it a particular thing you do or you say or you take or you go? James says, here's how I define sin. Here's how God defines sins. If somebody knows something that they should do that is good and right and they don't do it, that's sin. Well, James, that's not what Exodus says. That's not what Deuteronomy says. That's not what the Old Testament says. James says, hey, I mean, hey, my brother is Jesus. I'm inspired by him. And Jesus would say, if you bottle it all down, God has given us the ability to do good, to do the right thing for our sake, for the world, for those around us. And James says, I would define sin as somebody who knows the good thing to do and doesn't do it. Now, now what have we learned from Philippians and Romans about the good that God wants to do in us? Come on, there's a level of responsibility on us, not just to believe in good things, not just to vote for good things, not just to sing about good things, but to do good things. And saying, well, I live right isn't enough. Well, I live right and I'm doing my own thing and let them deal with it. No, no, no. Paul says that we should shine. Romans 12 says that we're a part of a body. We function in that body for, for a reason, to impact those around us, those within the body and those not yet within the body. Those around us are prime candidates to become believers. And so what if the good we do to them doesn't accomplish change in them? It still brings glory to God, right? It still helps build his kingdom. It still sends a signal to the devil that we're not gonna give in to your crooked and perverseness, your brokenness. I think the only reason we aren't enthused and motivated about this is we hear obedience and we think, oh no, not just more rules. But I wanna hear this is opportunity and I really believe that if we're engaged with God, if we're trusting and if we're talking to him, we will see the opportunities around us to live out our faith for good and gain of our world. Now, I wanna remind you of the story of Esther. Now, maybe you have heard her story before. Perhaps you have just heard about her and, and aren't really familiar with it. Let me kind of explain it to you before we get out of here. 
Esther was a Jewish girl who was, whose family was brought up in the Babylonian captivity. So back in the Old Testament, Israel is displaced. They're conquered. They're taken as captives and as refugees, and they're taken out of their homeland, and they're brought up in a place called Babylon around 600 BC. Well, as time goes on, Persia conquers Babylon, and they take over all the slaves and all the refugees that were passed along to them. The story goes that there was a man named Mordecai around 460, 470 BC, uh, a Jew living in the capital city of Persia. He was raising his younger cousin, Esther. Her parents had been killed. And word was spreading that the king was looking for a wife, a wife who was beautiful and wise and capable of leading alongside of him. So Mordecai pulls some strings and gets Esther enrolled in the contest or the, you know, the, the short list. And ultimately, she becomes the queen. The only problem is Esther concealed her Jewish identity because a lot of the Jews, considered refugees, uh, were not looked at with favor and many of them kind of were scorned. And so she uh, just never spoke about her, her ethnicity and, and nobody asked, so she didn't tell. So she becomes queen and, and lo and behold, a plot Unveil, unfolds in the empire. One of the king's advisors wants to get rid of these pesky Jews who worship a different God and don't respect the king and don't bow to the leaders. So a plot picks up steam to exterminate the Jews. And, and you know where this is going. Mordecai gets wind, sneaks into the palace to visit his cousin, the queen. And Mordecai tells Esther that she has to speak up. She has to leverage her position for good, for herself, for her people, for the world. But Esther thinks, I can't. I can't speak up. If I speak up, they'll know that I'm a Jew and that'll undo all that's been done to get me here. I might be killed and then they still won't help you. If I speak up, I just don't know if it'll, it'll be inconvenient for me and, and I don't really have to do this. I'm the queen. God's been good to me. So why should I worry about being good to others? That's their problem. So yeah, Esther didn't have to do anything. She could have survived the purge and been fine. Maybe, her, maybe risking her life to save the people would have been, uh, would have been more, risk, you know, more, more uh, you know, uh, dangerous than trying to continue to conceal her identity. But don't you remember Mordecai's words to Esther as she wrestled with this? Mordecai told them to reply Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. Let me pause there. He says, listen, Esther, God has put you here for a reason to make a difference in the world. Listen, this might be you as a wife, as a husband, as a parent in a, in a house, that, you know, a, a small house where nobody else even knows what's going on. This might be, be you in a classroom. It might be you in a workshop. It might be you in a retail place. It could be you in an office. It could be you in a church. It could be you in some larger community. It, it, it applies to all of us. But here's what Mordecai says. If you don't think you were placed there for a reason, Somebody else will come along that realizes their reason and God will use them to do a work that you could have done. But the opportunity for you will be gone. That you've been praying for this and you've been trusting God. The natural progression is that you might step out and obey him, that you might fully realize what you've been placed here for. And in the stinger, who knows whether you, not, whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time 
It's this, listen, I, I hear in the world today, there's, uh, the world's awful, the world's awful. No, 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 I get all that, I get all that. But, but Mordecai says to Esther, who knows, who knows? And of course we know, don't we? Who knows? What if you were placed in this crooked and perverse generation exactly for this moment? I know, Esther, you could, have, you could be wishing you were born 100 years ago or wishing you were born 100 years from now, whatever, all that. You could be wishing the king was different, the, the government was different, and all the society was different. You could wish all that, but listen, that stuff might change. It might not. But you have the ability to change this one thing. Who knows if you've not been placed here for this very reason. The time, the place, the opportunity. Who knows? Now, I know that Esther's story is way more extreme than most of us will ever understand, but the same principle applies, doesn't it? Obedience is an opportunity we otherwise wouldn't have. God puts us in place every single day to obey him and shine like stars for him, to speak up, to reach out, to lift up, and to pour out for his kingdom's sake. Listen to how Paul generalizes this for us from verse 9 through 14. Let your love be genuine. Let your love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love and honor, giving preference to one another, not lagging in diligence, being fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, being patient in tribulation and trials, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. And, and here's what Paul is saying. Do not counter evil with evil. There's enough of that in the world. You have an opportunity to do good in a world that is so, so, so far from where it should be. But God knew that when he put you right where you are. And, and look at how he summarizes all this down in verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. With good. So do you see where your entire Christian life has been leading you to? You've been trusting, you've been praying. The next step is to obey God and accomplish his good, to do his good. Notice how we keep saying good because God is a good God and he wants to unleash his goodness on the world. There is so much evil and darkness and sin in the world. And the solution isn't to retreat, but rather reflect the light and the goodness of God even more. To release the divine energy he's given to us that we gain, that we gain through our engagement. We're so caught up in giving, getting even. We're so caught up in paying back, measuring our obedience against what other people deserve. But what if we just started prioritizing doing good and being good for the sake of God and his kingdom? Giving not what people deserve, but what they don't deserve, just like he's done to us. What if we live by James' philosophy that we know the good to do, and if we don't do it to us, that is sin. It redefines how we even look at sin, doesn't it? What if we considered all the choices we make daily, morally, relationally, socially, professionally, financially, and what if we ask ourselves the question, how can I obey God with my life? How can I take advantage of today's opportunity and do good with my life? 
Paul gives us some pointers. He boils it all down to holding fast to good, refusing to contribute to the plenty of bad that's already in the world. So let me leave you with a question that I think is appropriate for every one of you to ask. In light of God's goodness to me and to channel his goodness through me, what is the next good thing I can do? I believe if all of us begin living moment to moment asking this question, that every time we have a decision to make, every time we have a phone call to take, a meeting to have, every time we go from one place to another, what if we begin asking the question, walking into every room that we walk into, the good rooms, the bad rooms, the difficult rooms, the, the frustrating rooms, every room, the, the fair rooms, the unfair rooms, what if we ask ourselves the question every day, walking into work, walking into our homes, walking into class, walking into wherever we're gonna go into for that moment, in light of God's goodness to me and in order to channel his goodness through me, what is the next good thing I can do? From the words we choose, the choices we make to what we do with our lives, what is the next good thing I can do? You know what this tells me? What this tells us that our past can't hold us back on this. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff that we might have should have done, but that's over, right? What's the next good thing I can do? I can't undo that, but I can do something good next. I can do something next that reflects the goodness of God through me. I think all of us should constantly scan our surroundings every single day, trust God, talk to God as his goodness comes to us, wants to go through us, ask the question, what is the next good thing I can do? For moral choices, financial decisions, the way we spend our time, what is the next good thing we can do? Psalm 76 says, make your vows to the Lord and perform them. I think this is a vow that we should make to take our engagement to the next level. We've trusted God. We've prayed to God. We are going to obey God. As lights in the world, we bring ourselves before him as a living sacrifice. Every day is an opportunity. He wills in us to work through us that we might do according to his will. So would you come? Would you come before him today as Romans 12, 1 and 2 calls you to? Would you come, as Paul said in Philippians, to work out your salvation, to put to work the salvation he's given you that you might do according to his good pleasure, that you might shine like a light in the world? Could it be for such a time as this, we've been placed here? Listen, I don't, I don't, I don't believe in coincidence. You are in the home you're in, you're in the workplace you're in, you're in the classroom you're in, you're in the social group you're in, you're in the church you're in, right? We are way too, I'm in control of my decisions and I can do what I want to do. No, 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 no. Listen, God, what we just, what we start this series off with, God is in control, right? For such a time as this, you've been placed here. I don't mean this physical building, I mean right here in your life. You've been positioned to do his good and to bring his kingdom to life. What is the next good thing you can do? It might be a phone call you make. It might be a conversation you have. It might be a check you write. It might be a, 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 a visit you make. What is the next good thing you could do? Listen, you know what the next good thing is in many cases. And James says, if we don't do it, what is that the equivalent of? Sin, right? Might not be a verse against it. But James says, if you know to do it and you don't do it. Church, can we pray for God to open our eyes to the opportunities he's given us every single day? 
He wants to work in you and through you. He has given you the desire. He has given you the ability. But remember, the arrow by itself doesn't do anything. The arrow pulled back doesn't do anything. But released, who knows what it can do? And who knows if that's the reason you've been placed right where you are. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to be in your house today. Thank you, Lord, for uh, giving me the strength to do this. Lord, forgive me for the weakness on my part. Lord, thanks for these folks enduring with my voice. But most of all, I pray that your voice has been heard today, that your word has been heard today, and that we as your people have understood there is obedience that we must follow through with. You have channeled to us your divine power, your grace to us that wants to work through us. Lord, would everybody here ask the question, in light of the goodness of God to us and what you want to do through us, what is the next good thing we can do? Father, I pray you might would show all of our hearts when we examine our morals, when we examine our finances, when we examine our families, when we examine our time, what is the next good thing we can do that honors you, that does good to others, and that helps build your kingdom one day at a time. You've been so good to us, God. Let us pay it forward by letting your goodness be unleashed on our world. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.